1: This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, your host. Before I introduce my guest, I want to acknowledge the death of one of our greatest writers. Although she was thought of as a science fiction and fantasy author, Ursula K. Le Guin transcended genre. She was a poet, a teacher of writing, an advocate for writers, and an inspiration for human beings who needed help imagining a better world and a different world. When I was a kid, I remember my parents debating whether I should be allowed to read Left Hand of Darkness because its characters had what today we might call fluid gender. My parents said yes, and lucky for me, because the book's vision of sexuality, even though it was fiction, offered a sort of reassurance that there would be a place for me in the world when I grew into a gay adult. Le Guin's books are filled with not only wonderful stories, but wisdom. As are her speeches, like the one she gave in 2014 when she accepted the National Book Award's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. In that speech, she memorably noted that, quote, the profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. She was lamenting the marketing department's veto power over books at large publishing houses. I doubt her words change many minds, but I'm grateful Ursula K. Le Guin was an advocate for good writing up until the end. And now on with the show. I think I'll call this the Just Because You're Not Eating Other Humans Doesn't Mean You're Not a Zombie episode. With me today is Robert J. Sawyer, the author of 23 novels and one of only a select few authors to win the Nebula, Hugo, and John W. Campbell Memorial Awards. I am delighted that he's joining me to discuss his most recent book, Quantum Night. Hi, Rob. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Hi Rob, I'm delighted to be here with a fellow Rob.
1: Quantum Knight has a lot of layers, but if I had to sum it up, I'd say it was a mystery about one man's attempt to recover lost memories and the search to understand human consciousness, all with the threat of something like a World War III looming in the background. The central character is Jim Marshuk, a psychology professor at the University of Manitoba who's developed a surefire way to prove that someone is a psychopath. And at the beginning of the book, he uses this method to prove that an American soldier who's committed horrible war crimes is, in fact, a psychopath. The idea of psychopathy plays a big role in the book, and you make clear that it doesn't necessarily lead to murder and killing sprees. So could you explain exactly what a psychopath is and how Marshuk's test works?
0: Sure. First, you have to recognize that we don't have a good diagnostic test that's absolutely reliable for psychopathy in the real world yet. The standard method that's used is a 20 point checklist. Uh, developed by a Canadian named Robert Hare, H-A-R-E, like a rabbit hare. And it's used worldwide uh, by courts and so forth to diagnose this thing called psychopathy. But it means that, for instance, one of the things is uh, uh, compulsive lying. And uh, it requires somebody to listen to what you're saying and say, oh, that guy's full of beans, or oh, okay, he's not lying to me right now. It requires a judgment call, in other words. So What all of these things are looking for, compulsive lying, sexual promiscuity, uh, manipulation of other people, really amounts to checking obliquely for a single trait, and that is the presence or absence of empathy for other human beings. If you have no empathy, if you can't ever see their point of view or take their feelings into account, then you're a psychopath. It's as simple as that. And if you do have empathy, so, you know, I can't really take that guy's wallet. What is he going to do when he has to go and pay for his uh, his daughter's uh, uh, baby food tonight? You know, oh, my God, I can't do that. Then you're not a psychopath. But we don't have a tool that measures empathy the way we have a tool that measures blood pressure yet. And the central conceit of quantum night is we do finally get that
1: tool. And Jim Marshick is the one who develops that tool, as does a former girlfriend of his from college who goes on to become a physicist. And both their tests lead them to an exploration of consciousness, uh, what it is and how it works. And I know that's a subject you've explored in many of your books, just as quantum mechanics is something you've also written a lot about. So in Quantum Night, you bring both those things together, consciousness and quantum physics, and you do it by building on some real-world theories. Could you talk about some of the theorists who inspired you and how you've developed their ideas in quantum night?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, the standard model of consciousness is that it's based on neural nets. It's based on the connections between the neurons in your brain, the synaptic connections. The more of them you have, the more conscious The brain is and human beings have more interconnections than anything else on the planet and that's why we have self-awareness and inner life and so forth but 20 odd years ago a physicist a very famous physicist named sir roger penrose he's knighted in great britain uh and it was a collaborator with Stephen Hawking on uh, development of theories about black holes, said, look, no, 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 that's too simple, and it doesn't account for a lot of the conundra related to consciousness. Yeah, there are neural nets in your brain, absolutely, no question of their existence, but is that where self-awareness arises? He did not think so, and he made an argument, which I won't go into the complexities of, but it's, it's fundamentally it's based on something called Gordel's incompleteness theorem, that basically says There are some systems that are so complex they cannot be described within themselves. They need to take a step back and be looked upon to describe. And he said the only physical realities that give you that double perspective simultaneously of being two things at once are quantum physics. So he said, I don't know, except from first principles, that quantum physics is probably The secret of consciousness has to do with quantum physics rather than classical chemical squirting of neurotransmitters between one neuron, which is a cell in your brain, and another neuron, which is a cell in your brain. Well, he didn't have a mechanism. He published his book. His book came out, and it was called The Emperor's New Mind. And an anesthesiologist, essentially almost half a world away in Arizona, uh, read it. And his name was Stuart Hameroff. And Stuart Hameroff had been fascinated by consciousness as an anesthesiologist you might well imagine would be because his job was not only depriving people of consciousness, but be sure, being sure they would reliably regain it. And Penrose had said, I don't have any mechanism. I don't know how it could happen quantum mechanically. And Hameroff wrote to him and said, look, there are these structures within The fine details of cellular tissue called microtubules, and they actually do behave quantum mechanically. There are isolated um, electrons within them that are in what we call quantum mechanic superposition, two positions or two states at once. And when I give gas, a halothane as an anesthetic, to my patients, the classical... Uh, the quantum superposition collapses and classical physics ensues. So here is something that actually happens in the brain that uh, when people are conscious, they're behaving quantum mechanically, when they're not conscious, when they're out cold, not just asleep, but out cold so that you can gut them like a trout in surgery, they're only a classical system. So the two of them have collaborated now for two decades on refining this theory. And I've been aware of the theory for a couple of decades now, and I've gone back to it over and over again. It is a contentious theory, it is one that a lot of people don't believe, but it's also one that has a lot of uh, followers and other researchers who've been adding more and more to it as time goes by. My job as a science fiction writer is to go with the most entertaining theory that still fits the known facts, and this is certainly it from the point of view of writing about consciousness.
1: And you also draw on some other, I think, famous even to lay people, uh, psychologists like Stanley Milgram, who did his shock machine obedience to authority study in the early 60s. And I was reading up a little on Milgram, inspired by your book, and learned that he had been driven in part by a desire to understand the German Holocaust and figure out how and why an entire population could participate in, in carrying out mass murder. And I got the feeling that you also were trying to explore the notion of human evil. And I wondered if you could say a bit more about, uh, well, Stanley Milgram's study and about your own motivations in in writing Quantum Night and what you were trying to explore.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that, that it looked like I was trying to explore the notion of evil, because that's precisely what I was doing. I'm known as an optimistic an upbeat science fiction writer. But uh, over the last couple of years, a few critics, and I tend not to pay much attention to them at all, but you do note a recurring theme, which is maybe Sawyer is so optimistic that he's naive, that he's Pollyanna-ish about the future. I thought, okay, all right. uh, It's true I don't write an awful lot about evil. What about writing a novel about the science of evil? And that was my first notion. My second notion was, well, okay, how do you research the science of evil? How does anybody research anything? You put that phrase into Google. And what pops up? Well, the very first thing that pops up is psychopathy, the study of psychopaths, which we've already spoken about. But then you start seeing these names, and I was already well familiar with them. I did a minor in psychology back in the day at university, Stanley Milgram. Who famously in the 1960s, early starting in 1960, so 15 years after the end of World War II, and a decade later, Stanley Milgram's actual schoolmate from uh, days gone by, Philip Zimbardo, who did an experiment at Stanford University known as the Prison Guard or Stanford Prison Guard Experiment. Both of them were Jewish, both of them were wrestling with how this country, Germany, which had been the home to so many of their family members, uh, could on a dime in terms of historical time, turn from being the center of art, culture, music, science, philosophy, to being an organized genocidal killing machine. And they would try to find out what it was in human psychology that would let not Adolf Hitler. you can understand a monster. Everybody understands the notion of a monster. What would have let the guy who lived next door to, let's say, uh, Milgram's uncle or Zimbardo's uh, aunt, turn them in or turn a blind eye when somebody came to drag them off to the gas chambers? How do you make sense of that? And they both studied psychology and they both contrived experiments that were... Uh, shocking in their conclusions, literally and uh, in the case of, um, of uh, Milgram and figuratively in the case of Zimbardo. What Milgram did was he got people, he told them that he was doing an experiment in learning, how easily people could learn things. And he had people come in uh, and he paid them $5 to come and sit for an hour and there'd be somebody in another room hooked up to them, who would do word association tests. So if I say night, you say day. If I say hot, you say cold or whatever. And when they got it wrong, when they didn't come up with the right sort of response, give them a little shock to show them they didn't get it right. Well, the shock was supposed to go up 15 volts, I think it was, uh, with every successive wrong answer to the point where it would be a life-threatening shock to the person receiving it. But there was a guy, authoritarian-looking guy, in a lab coat, just don't worry, it's fine, keep going. And what, to his astonishment, uh, uh, Stanley Milgram found was that all sorts of people would just keep cranking up that knob even when they started hearing screams from the supposedly experimental subject. Well, of of course, the supposedly experimental subject was Milgram's confederate, somebody working with him. The real experimental subject was seeing how high up somebody would crank that knob just because Uh, an authority figure, a guy in a lab coat said, go ahead, it's fine, do it. And the answer was an enormous number of people were willing to do that. Now, today, we wouldn't be able to replicate that experiment. It was the Wild West. Of psychology at that time. You could do experiments on people without any real regard of what might happen to their mental health. I mean, how do you go home to your wife and kids at the end of the day after thinking you had been willing just on somebody's say-so to shock somebody into a heart attack, right? You know, it damages the experimental subject. So we have to rely on these old pieces of data now over almost 60 years old now. Uh, but it showed that authoritarianism breeds... A lack of responsibility. And Zimbardo did the same thing. He just arbitrarily divided people at Stanford, one of the top universities in the world. Best of the best in terms of students, arbitrarily divided them into prison guards and uh, prisoners and just saw what dynamic developed. And almost immediately, the prison guards, including Zimbardo himself, who was playing the part of the warden, became cruel, sadistic, torturing mentally and physically the poor prisoners these were regular guys and the other students were their classmates and it got immediately out of control as soon as they had some smidgen of authority over other people it revealed the darkest part of our human psyche and explains sadly why what happened in Nazi Germany could very easily happen again
1: Well, there are definitely echoes of those kinds of experiments in Quantum Night with kind of devastating consequences, I would say, for, for Jim Marshuk. Sure. And it's interesting that you are known as an optimistic science fiction writer because Jim Marshuk and later his old girlfriend Kayla Huron discovered through their experiments that the vast majority of humans are either psychopaths or what they call philosophers zombies, and that didn't strike me as particularly optimistic. Could you explain what a philosopher's zombie is, and then maybe we can talk about you know the consequences of having a world filled with psychopaths and and these kinds of zombies?
0: Absolutely, the term philosopher's zombie isn't mine. It's attributed to an Australian-born um, philosopher of mind, of consciousness, named David Chalmers. And David Chalmers now actually uh, has come to the United States and he's uh, done a great deal of work with Stuart Hameroff, the anesthesiologist I mentioned earlier. But he said, uh, Chalmers said, look, you and I and everybody listening to this have had this experience. You got up in the morning and let's say you drove to work and you arrive at work and you have no recollection of the drive. Or you're reading down a page of a book not one of mine, you understand, but somebody else's book. And then you get to the bottom of the page and you realize you have no idea what it was that you've just read. Or maybe in the middle of the night, your phone rings, somebody calls you. Oh my God, you have a conversation, you hang up, and in the morning, you can't remember the call at all, right? All of those are complex things that we would think require a high level of inner life consciousness. Operating a multi-ton motor vehicle, weaving in and out of traffic, reading linguistic processing, taking in ideas, having a conversation with another person who has no idea that you aren't really awake when they have that conversation. And yet every one of us have done these things without our conscious attention being there. That's why we don't remember them. So Chalmers said, look, if it can happen some of the time, what about all the time? Could it be that some people Maybe even the majority of people, maybe even a whole world of people have no inner life. The lights are on, as he likes to say, but nobody's home. It gives the appearance to every outward observer that they are conscious, awake, interactive, alive mentally. But in fact, they're just going through the motions. And he called that a philosopher's zombie. And I was always intrigued by that notion because you and I are talking here, Rob, we're doing a Skype conversation. I'm not face to face with you. And right now you're not even speaking. I have to assume and it's just an assumption, right, from my point of view, that you're listening attentively to what I have to say, that you're saying, OK, Rob just said this, but it contradicts something you said earlier. My next question is going to be or whatever it is that's going through your head right now.
1: I swear I, swear, I am listening very attentively and that, right. that proves it because I've just responded and now I can go back to sleep.
0: Well, exactly right, because all it might have been is a mechanical response sitting here. you Maybe I can make your talk in the background here. Alexa, what time is that? The time is 8.36 p.m. There it is. I have an electronic assistant. Now, Alexa heard me, and she answered my question, but she clearly is not conscious or awake. We would all agree that. Stop, Alexa. She's glowing at me right now. Stop. Alexa, stop. Uh, so you could have been doing the same thing. For all I can determine simply by the conversation. And Chalmers put this notion forward, and I thought, you know What? Mindless followers, isn't that the term that's constantly applied to most of the German population uh, during Nazi Germany? Mindless followers of a charismatic psychopath. And, you know, at some point you almost reach a point where you say the novel almost writes itself. When I sat down to do Quantum Night and had done all this research, all these elements, you used the words layers earlier, all these layers, all these elements just went bing, 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 bing click, click, click. Uh, Nazi Germany, authoritarian leaders, mindless followers, philosophers, zombies, a test for psychopathy. Could the kind of evil that was Nazi Germany happen again? Well, there's some signs in some countries, no names that uh, please at the moment, that it is happening again. So the novel seemed timely and apropos, and all of the elements uh, just made what was for me a really good meaty philosophical stew, but also a good springboard for a good character driven uh, slash action oriented novel.
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of action because while your characters are exploring these issues, Jim Marshak is trying to come to terms with this gap in his memory which is tied to the experiments that occurred when he was in college in his youth. There is also on the world stage, you know, riots starting to occur and even locally in Canada where Jim and Kayla live, there are riots going on and you very neatly tie that in with their discovery about the existence or prevalence of psychopaths and philosophers, zombies. And I have to say, it was a very frightening picture. And I wonder what your actual feeling is. Do you think the world really could be filled with something along those lines? You know, the mindless followers? Everyone, I suppose, has the potential to be a mindless follower. But I wonder what your opinion is about that.
0: Yeah, not to give spoilers or anything like that. But... Uh... As I got more and more into reading this and writing the book, I started to realize that quite possibly the majority, more than a half of the people in the human race were mindless followers. And I think actually in the my book came out about a year ago uh, in paperback and before that in hardcover. uh, The more I watch what's happening in the world, the more I become convinced it's probably true that most people do not engage at all ethically, morally, politically, or empathetically with other human beings around them. They just go along with the crowd. One of the metaphors I use in the novel is the schooling of fish or the flocking of birds, which looks like very complicated behavior, but really is just... Any given bird saying, okay, what's Joe doing on the left? What's Fred doing on the right? All right, here's how I fit in, and just go along with the flow. And we see, well, I will mention uh, my own very strong reaction to Donald Trump's presidency and seeing the fact that he still, a year in, has large numbers of supporters who are, one would presume— Uh, would be very surprised uh, at themselves if they actually looked at it and read his policies. Um, So yeah, I actually do, I have come to believe that this is pretty close to the way the world actually works. Large number of mindless followers and a very small number of people who are
1: skilled at manipulating them. Well, let me note too that you, you finished the book and published it before Donald Trump was actually elected, and yet your president, well, the United States president certainly has echoes of uh, our current president, and there also is a strong anti-immigrant movement. And on top of that, just to add a little more conflict, Canada has a Muslim prime minister, and I have to say that it certainly shows vision, if only you know a few months into the future, but you certainly uh, seem to have predicted things.
0: Well, thank you. The... Uh In my novel, a man named Nahid Nenshi becomes Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, He is currently the mayor of Calgary, Alberta. He's a real person. And I used him in my novel because I thought, you know, what would drive a Trump-like president, which is what I do have in the novel, absolutely batty. And that would be if an even much, much longer border and a totally essentially undefended border, uh, the one between the United States and Canada, the one between is much, much longer than the one between the United States and Mexico, and that just over the border, the head of state was Muslim. I thought, wow, that is an interesting scenario. But, you know, there were people who would say, oh, yeah, well, maybe in 50 years, Canada or the United States or any country you want to name might have a Muslim or might have a, uh, a Jewish person or whatever you want, an atheist, whatever you want to name that has not yet been in power in that particular Jurisdiction, but no, we've got one of our most popular Canadian politicians right now uh, is um, a practicing Muslim, and if he threw his hat in the ring uh, for the federal leadership, I think he would have a very, very good chance at becoming our prime minister. So I wanted to ground it in a reality. Not this is a far out social experiment that can never happen. It's a reality that the United States might have as its closest neighbor and its closest trading partner a country with a Muslim head of state in the very near future.
1: So are you in fact less optimistic than you have been before?
0: You gotta be, man, you gotta be. It's sad but true looking at the news of the last year. Let's not beat up on Trump constantly. Let's look at the Me Too movement, for instance. The the falling of so many uh, men in power because we discovered that they, in fact, were nasty, manipulative psychopaths. Name after name after name you've seen in the news over the past six months, right? And going back even a couple of years now uh, with uh, Cosby, right, who was America's dad for the longest time and now has been revealed to be you know, a sexual predator. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I did think that most human beings on balance were good people. And now we're seeing. Eh, I'm not. It's hard to make that case with some of the things that are happening in the world today. It's all the more important that those who are good people stand up and be counted and get involved politically, socially, at the volunteer level, at the uh, at the opinion making level, uh, as much as they can. I, I happen to be very lucky. I'm a member of the Order of Canada, which is the closest thing Canada has to a knighthood. Um, celebrated author up here but with that goes a superpower that superpower is i get to perform citizenship ceremonies i actually give the oath of citizenship to new canadians including the refugees who we welcome with open arms in canada unlike our big neighbor to the south these days i'm doing everything i can to try to make that optimistic world that i wrote about for two decades prior to writing quantum night into a reality because it's become apparent to me as i grow and mature and i'm 57 right? i'm not a young man but as i grow and mature in my own thinking it's become apparent to me that left unattended and i learned this actually I, uh, dr mccoy said this on star trek 50 years ago you know it, uh in my experience evil always triumphs unless good is very very careful
1: what a lovely bonus for for being a member of the the Order of Canada that you get to do that what a joyful thing
0: It is fascinating and I didn't know I was inducted into the order had no idea this was what was going to come down the pike with it and then within days I get a call from we have this lovely name by the way for the uh, the government department that's responsible administration ministry of immigration refugees and citizenship right that's how important refugees are to our country uh you can't imagine there being a government department with that name or uh, you don't have ministries but with that name in the united states uh right now and uh they uh we're we're processing so many new canadians there was a dearth of actual citizenship judges. And somebody in the ministry had this brainstorm a few years ago and said, well, why don't we have prominent Canadians do it? And who are our most prominent Canadians? They're the members of the Order of Canada, our highest civilian honor. And I'm so thrilled to do it. In fact, today is Tuesday the 30th. It's a week today, I think, is when I do it next.
1: Well, absolutely fantastic. Tell me what's next. What are you working on and what can... Your fans expect from you with your next book?
0: Sure. Um, I have taken a detour for a while into doing some television writing uh, in 2009, 2010, there was an ABC TV series called flash forward based on my novel flash forward of the same name. And I was one of the script writers for the show. I had a blast doing it and i wanted to get back into doing some more work in that area. It's an uphill climb to sell TV projects, but I've been writing scripts and uh, spent some time. I wrote the series finale for the fan film, Web series Star Trek continues their two-part series finale that wraps up Kirk's original five-year mission. All of that stuff, which was fun and great pleasure to do, took me away from writing novels for a while. But I'm back, full steam ahead on my 24th novel, has the working title of Tube Alloys. Tube Alloys was the code name, uh, the British code name for what became the Manhattan Project, the joint American-British-Canadian effort to build the world's first atomic bomb, and the year 2020, two years from now, be the 75th anniversary of the conclusion of the Manhattan Project with the Trinity test and then a month later the dropping with great horrific consequences, but also ending the war of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, the conceit of my novel is an existential threat is discovered for the human race in 1945 that isn't human-caused And that incredible brain trust, the greatest minds ever assembled, who were the scientists and engineers of the Manhattan Project, stay together to try and solve this and maybe redeem themselves by becoming life instead of having become death, as Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the head of the scientific head of the Manhattan Project, referred to up. So that's the book I'm writing right now. Probably won't come out probably until 2020 from a marketing point of view. That's the year to bring it out on that 75th anniversary. But it is it and still some TV projects are what are occupying me these days.
1: Well, the fact that you've written 23 novels and are working on your 24th in addition to your television work is incredibly impressive. Any insight into what your method is or your rhythm? Is it just like sit down from sun up to sundown? Or how are you so productive?
0: Well, part of it is just an honest appreciation of the fact that there are an awful lot of people who would kill to have my job. Seriously. I've been lucky enough to be a full-time writer of one stripe or another uh, since I was 23 years old in 1983. And there are all kinds of people who would love to do that. When the luck does come your way, it enables you to do that. And certainly I work hard. Certainly I've got talent. But I've also had an awful lot of luck, and I freely acknowledge that. And when it comes your way and you've got the job that others are envious of, you dishonor them. If you don't take it seriously and say, okay, I'm lucky enough, I did get this, I'm going to work my tail off. And that really is part of my psyche. Secondarily, uh, I do set goals for myself. A carrot is better than a stick, I always think. And my carrot is, if I write 2,000 words in a day, I'm done for the day. I can say, great, day's over uh in terms of my work now if that's at 11:30 30 in the morning it means i've got the rest of the day to go to a movie uh to watch a tv show to read a book to go out with friends to do whatever the heck i want so it incentivizes me when i say to myself if i get nobody knows how many hours i spent on a given day writing if i get it done in an hour and a half or two hours boom a bonus free time Sometimes it comes easily and sometimes I meet that deadline. Other times, sadly, it will take me 14 hours to get that done. Well, I don't give up until I've done that daily allotment of 2,000 words. Now, we'll say very quickly, when I started the daily allotment, was was 1,000, then it was 1,250, then it was 1,500, and then it was 2,000. So uh, if you're a beginning writer out there, set yourself a goal that's realistic for a beginner. Try to do 1,000 words a day. See if you can do that. If you do that every day, At the end of the year, you'll have written 365,000 words. Well, guess what? That's three and a half novels worth of
1: prose. The average commercial novel these days is about 100,000 words. So go to it. Well, fantastic. That's some great advice. And thank you so much for your time and discussing Quantum Night with me and all these other weighty topics.
0: An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your show.
1: I've been talking to Robert J. Sawyer, the Nebula, Hugo and John W. Campbell Memorial Award winning author of 23 novels, including Quantum Night. If you want to hear more author interviews, please visit the science fiction channel of the New Books Network, that's newbooksnetwork.com, or subscribe to our podcast. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And I'm very glad that you stopped by. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the
0: limo and we lost track of time. <gasps>